Please be seated. Good morning and happy feast day. 600 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Daniel wrote these words about him, which we just read a few moments ago, and which I'd like to reread to you for a moment. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Today is the solemnity of Christ the King, a celebration of great significance for all the church, but one that has particular relevance to us who are a parish named after Christ the King. The reality that we celebrate today, namely the kingship of Jesus, was the very issue that prompted the most serious charge that the Jewish Sanhedrin brought against Jesus to Pilate. In Luke 23, 2, we read this, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Jesus' claim to kingship was also the thing that provoked an extreme measure of cruelty from the Roman soldiers in their treatment of Jesus, as well as the mocking insults from the mob at Calvary. And finally, even to the end, it was a point of bitter conflict and controversy over the inscription which Pilate had placed over Jesus' head on the cross. The rejection of Jesus' kingship by so many in Israel was based on one or both of two reactions that the people of his day had to his claim to be king and Messiah. One reaction was disillusionment over their own unfulfilled expectations. Because you see, for generations, the Jews had been hoping for and expecting the emergence of a king who would ascend the long empty throne of King David and who would then rally and invigorate the nation once again to forcibly throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and restore Israel to its past glory. The other reaction was one of offense at what they perceived to be Jesus' blasphemous claim to be a to a heavenly kingship, one predicated on his own more blasphemous, in their minds, more blasphemous claim to be the Son of God. But of course, Pontius Pilate had no use for either the Jews' disappointment or for their offended religious sensibilities. And it was really not until the Jewish leadership pointed out to Pilate that Jesus' claim of kingship placed him at odds with Caesar that Pilate actually began to sit up and take notice. It was, of course, both ironic and hypocritical that they would do so, since they themselves thoroughly rejected Jesus' claim. The irony lay in the fact that they accused Jesus of being what they themselves initially had wanted him to be, namely an earthly king. 
In other words, what Jesus really was, namely a heavenly king, they would not accept. But what they wanted him to be, namely an earthly king, they used against him. The hypocrisy would reach a sacrilegious fever pitch shortly as the chief priests would scream at Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And so our gospel passage begins with Pilate's burning question to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate, of course, had the Sanhedrin's accusation in mind, as well as perhaps reports that may have reached him of the hubbub that accompanied Jesus' triumphal entry into the city just five days earlier. And so the question, are you the king of the Jews? After first answering Pilate's question with one of his own, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you concerning me? The Lord then replies straightforwardly and goes right to the heart of the matter. We read this this morning, John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingship is not from, this, from the world. This is part of what Jesus had been communicating to his own disciples for three years, and they did not yet comprehend it. So there's little hope that this pagan governor will have even the foggiest notion of what Jesus is talking about. Nonetheless, Jesus forges ahead. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So then whether Pilate can accept it or not, and whether the religious leaders will accept it or not, Jesus has come to bear witness to ultimate truth, truth spoken and modeled by the one who is the truth. Everyone, he said, who is of the truth hears my voice. To say it another way, those who recognize Christ's kingship and sovereignty accept his authority, and he thus reigns over them in an eternal and universal kingdom. This premise, of course, is lost on Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, and so Jesus is condemned to death. Yet another irony of the event, as the king of the universe allows himself to appear helpless and vulnerable before mere human beings. And in a particularly cruel effort to mock his claim to kingship, the Roman soldiers crown him with thorns and put a, put a purple robe on him. And Pilate, for his part, in a move to show disdain for the Jews, has an inscription placed over Jesus' head on the cross in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew so that everyone who passes by this scene can read it. The inscription says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Most crucifixes, including the one over our altar behind me, depict a variation of that inscription, I-N-R-I, the abbreviated Latin words, Jesus Nazarenum Rex Judeorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
The religious leaders protest to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, as we know from the biblical account, dismisses their protest with the curt declaration, what I have written, I have written. And in so doing, Pontius Pilate, the pagan, unwittingly lets stand the only real element of truth to emanate from those responsible for Jesus' crucifixion and death. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that's where you and I come in. You and I are citizens of the kingdom Jesus preached and subjects of that kingdom's king. And there is an event that will take place at a point in time in the future that will both confirm and validate Jesus' kingship once and for all, for all humanity, believers and non-believers alike. That event will be his second coming, when Jesus will return not in the way he came the first time, as a lowly baby and as the humble Lamb of God who quietly and willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. This time, it will be as the King of kings and Lord of lords who will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to rule and reign forever. Then all will know, all will know what ultimate truth is and what Jesus meant when he said that he came to bear witness to the truth. This whole concept of truth as Jesus speaks of it is wrapped up inescapably in the concept of the king and his kingdom because the truth is that all who have heard and responded to his voice, including you and me, and thus are of the truth, are citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. That is much more than pious sentiment. That is a reality that should have a profound impact on the way that we live our lives. And that impact stems from an abiding worldview that should be engendered within us by our understanding that you and I belong to another realm. Did you hear what I said? You and I belong to another realm, another kingdom. This earthly kingdom, this earthly realm is not our home. It is part of our journey. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus told Pilate. And you see, there is an ongoing conflict, a dichotomy within you and me, isn't there? There's a conflict that is inevitable because of our living in one realm, namely this earthly one, but knowing and trying to shape our lives around the knowledge that we belong to another realm, the heavenly one. When we say that Jesus is our Lord and King, what we're saying is that we owe our allegiance and our loyalty first and foremost to Him and to His kingdom. So then how does this principle work itself out in our daily lives, practically speaking? Well, let me just cite one timely example. Our king tells us in his written word that our bodies, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 
Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you take it seriously? Among all the other things that that implies, if you do, if you do take it seriously, is this, that no earthly king or president or public health official or billionaire technocrat gets to dictate what we must put into our bodies, into these temples of the Holy Spirit. Because that's between us and God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, if you think about it in a kind of strange paradox, it's easier for a Christian living today in a repressive totalitarian regime to maintain that perspective of the heavenly kingdom than it is for us. I'm sure, for example, that Christians living in the Roman Empire of the first three centuries or in the Soviet Union of the 20th century or today in radical Islamic countries had and have an easier time acknowledging in their hearts their primary allegiance to King Jesus than do most Christians living in America today. And I think the reasons are obvious. I say it because there is little or nothing, there was little or nothing in the societies of ancient Rome or of the Soviet Union or today in radical Islam to compete with the Christian's attention or affection. But there is much in our modern Western culture of freedom, uh, peace, and prosperity to attract us and thus to distract us from our allegiance and responsibilities to the one whom we verbally confess as Lord. And I say allegiance and responsibilities because these concepts really go to the heart of our response, our personal response to the kingship of Christ. Which brings us to this question. If Christ is king as we profess, over what is he king? Over what is he king? We know that he is the king of creation. We know that he is the king of the universe, the king of heaven and earth. But on a more personal level, it's important to note that if we are truly living under the lordship of Christ, then he is also king of our minds, our wills, and our hearts. Over our minds, because as we said, his kingship has its foundation in absolute truth. I have come to bear witness to the truth. Over our wills, because authentic discipleship and Christian servanthood demand the surrender of our wills to his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Over our hearts, because the king who is truth is also the God who is love. And because by our relationship with him, his love 
St. Paul says, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus' kingship over our minds, our wills, and our hearts is what comes about when, as St. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, God delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so then, what is incumbent upon you and me is first of all to persuade ourselves that that is true, that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And then to frame our entire lives around that truth, not allowing anything or anyone to come between us and our loyalty to King Jesus. In other words, to live all our lives as if we truly believe that Christ is King, that we truly are His subjects, that we truly are called by the King to walk in His truth and His love, that we must pray and work to advance the reign and the kingdom of King Jesus in the earth as we confidently wait for His return with our minds dedicated to the truth of our King our wills surrendered in service to our King, and our hearts on fire with love for our King, love strong enough to live for Him and strong enough, if necessary, to die for Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.